0: Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at bloomberg.com/techsf.
1: You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 1 Eastern on bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app and the Bloomberg Business App.
2: Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. The 21-year-old Air National Guardsman arrested in connection with the leak of the highly classified documents from the Pentagon stood in court today after being arrested yesterday, making the metropolis of Dighton, Massachusetts a household name, not to mention the man himself, Jack DeShera, who today was formally charged in federal court. Bloomberg reporter Ann Mostu is at the Mokley Courthouse in Boston and joins us now. Ann, what's he charged with?
3: Well, Joe, quite quite a shocking 24 hours here in Massachusetts. The prosecution read the charges, unauthorized retention and transmission of national defense information and unauthorized removal and retention of classified documents or material. Now, each holds a maximum prison time of 5 to 10 years, and we're waiting to find out if he's going to be charged per document because he's Hmm. uploaded hundreds of documents.
2: Wow. I'm sure it was a media frenzy. What was it like outside there, Ann?
3: Yeah, it was, sure was a media frenzy, Joe. There were probably 75 reporters from outlets all over the world. Um, I was sitting next mm-hmm. to a man from The Guardian. And um, we all showed up very early because it wasn't clear when uh, Jack Teixeira would appear. And it was 10 a.m. when he finally did. So mm-hmm. I was in the courtroom. He showed up in a beige jumpsuit, not showing much emotion. He's a small, built man. He's 21 years old, so he really looked like a boy.
2: No kidding. Uh, came from Dayton. And worked on Cape Cod, right? He was part of the 102nd Intelligence Unit. It used to be a fighter wing based there at Otis Air Force Base. There's not a lot left of that base, and I was actually kind of surprised to hear that that's where all of this stuff went down.
3: That's exactly right, Joe. I mean, when we first heard that, that it was a Massachusetts person leaking Pentagon documents, my first thought was it must be a hacker at MIT. But right. when we found out it was a man in his parents' basement in a small town in southern Massachusetts, it was really shocking. and That's right. He had access to documents on the Joint Base Cape Cod, which is a full-scale joint-use base. It's home to five military commands training for missions at home and overseas, and he appeared to have full security clearance. Hmm. And From what we understand, he was transcribing by hand and then dictating what he was seeing, because he wasn't allowed to have electronics Hmm. in the rooms where he had access to documents. At some point, though. Started taking determined.
2: photographs of those documents, did he not?
3: That's right. That's 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 what that's what the Washington Post has just reported. Yeah. Now that didn't they didn't get into that much detail at today's appearance. They didn't actually even. Um, have any pleas. He just was read um, his rights to remain silent and asked if he understood what was going on. He said he did. Mm-hmm. Um, he looked very quiet. He was very soft-spoken. He looked around the room for his parents who were there. He had a federal public defender representing him, and he apparently, according to the judge, does qualify financially for a public defender. It's not clear whether he'll have a different attorney going oh, forward.
2: Fascinating. When's he back in court, uh, And do we know?
3: He's back on Wednesday. Okay. Yeah, and he said very little. So they they read the charges, and asked if he understood, and he was then again handcuffed again. His father quietly said, "Love you, Jack," and he quietly said, "Love you too." Oh, and then man. he was led out of the courtroom.
2: Wow. Were you in an overflow room? What did they? What kind of accommodation did they have uh, for mm-hmm. press to watch this?
3: They did have an overflow room, but I was in the the courtroom itself. Good and, job. Um, yeah, no, I always get there early, Joe. <laughs> yeah,
2: of course, you're Ann Mostu. But, <laughs> Are you going to be assigned to this? Are you following this from here?
3: I I probably will be. I mean, Somebody asks
2: Ann, editor, Ann's editor, I, we want to have you back whenever we get something on this. Ann, this is great, and I really appreciate. Thanks very your, much, Joe. Yeah, joining us from our beautiful Boston bureau, Ann Mastu, Bloomberg News reporter, overlooking the Boston Common to the Golden Dome. With us here on Bloomberg Sound On to get things started. And we had the voice of James Jeffrey, the former ambassador to Iraq and Turkey, special envoy to the Global Coalition to Defeat ISIS, and now chair of the Middle East program at the Wilson Center. Mr. Ambassador, it's great to have you with us here. Everyone's asking the same questions, beginning with how a 21 year old has access to this type of information. I don't know if you have an answer to that.
4: Um, I do from uh, 50 years in the U.S. government. Uh, There are tens of thousands of 21-year-olders of people roughly of that age uh, in the U.S. military and in the U.S. intelligence and diplomatic community who have top-secret clearances and thus access to a broad, broad variety of intelligence information. The culture is to spread it as widely as possible to ensure that the right information gets to leaders at the right time. It works pretty well in that regard. As you can see, it is very hard to keep it from slipping out of U.S. government control. Got you. We
2: may need to reconnect with you just to warn you, Ambassador. We'll see if your phone line hooks up here or, or, or improves here. I just want to make sure we understand uh, what you're saying. There's there's a, there's a debate going on on social media, as I saw last night and woke up to this morning, where the likes of Tucker Carlson and Marjorie Taylor Greene seem to be kind of siding uh, 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 with with this young man, Jack Deshera, to suggest that he is some sort of whistleblower on the war in Ukraine. Uh, Whistleblower versus leaker are two very different things, aren't they?
4: Um, Yes and no. They are very closely related. But a whistleblower goes to intent what your motives are. A leaker is a physical act. It is the release of unauthorized information to unauthorized people, and it is punishable by law. In the case of uh, Jack Dexteria, we're talking about the espionage act. So it's a very serious thing, and the motives for it are not of primary importance, frankly, and I do not think that in this case he was a whistleblower. There's no indication uh, so far that uh, he was anything other than a naive kid who Mm. thought this stuff would just stay in the circle of friends he had.
2: I guess that would also be underscored by the fact that there was no particular direction with a lot of these documents. He was just kind of exposing whatever he could, as opposed to specifically the war in Ukraine or or one particular issue.
4: Exactly. I mean, uh, Fox News is not always the uh, best, uh, Are all Congresswomen, uh, the best uh, sources of information. Uh, He was trying to impress his friends and he just grabbed what was out there. But as we can see, there was a lot of very damaging, potentially damaging information that is out there that somebody could grab. And he had no real specific need for any of this stuff. That's what's so critical.
2: Yeah. So it it makes us question the motive or the charges, uh, what they should be ambassador and and what should be the punishment.
4: Uh, The punishment should be quite severe. It will take into consideration what his motives were. And so far as we can see, At this point, it was not to harm or damage the United States, or even if you're a whistleblower, to try to make your own foreign policy. Hmm. Uh, It was rather uh, an internal thing. His intent was not for this to get into the public uh, sector. So that will be a uh, uh, consideration. But nonetheless, these are very serious charges. And the reason is we have to uh, contain and deter others from doing this for whatever reason because this is extremely damaging to our whole global position and frankly the uh collective security that keeps all of us and most everybody else in the world safe including many ukrainians right now and people on taiwan
2: why not charge them with treason
4: um i think that would be a well first of all treason uh as you know is the only crime that the Constitution actually talks about. Hmm. We didn't charge the Confederate leadership with treason. It's a very, very big step, and it would have to involve uh, intent, motive, and I just so far don't see that in this kid's case.
2: Okay, understood. Uh, you mentioned relationships and what this means uh, for us on a global level here. you know, There's been a lot of sort of smirking about the idea of you know, anyone ever thought we weren't spying on our allies. Maybe they should grow up a little bit, but maybe you feel differently, Ambassador. How much cleanup does the Biden administration have to do outside of the U.S.?
4: A great deal. First of all, this is one of now a pattern of us with WikiLeaks uh, and with the other cases over the past 15 years that indicate that we unique among uh Western governments don't seem to be able to keep control of our secrets. There was one famous case in Britain involving uh, going into Iraq, but that was clearly a whistleblower. is clearly a huge national issue. These things we're talking about in the United States are just sloppy controls and people taking advantage of them, but it is doing real damage. Uh, our allies expect us to spy on them, but they expect us not to embarrass them by letting it get public. To be okay. very blunt
2: with you. That's a great way of putting it, then. So we are grown up enough to know that this is happening, but you can't excuse the sloppy work here.
4: Uh, Exactly. And, again, they don't do it. They wonder why we do it. And uh, I sometimes wonder myself. But, um, (laughs) again, I'm one who's benefited from the free flow of information uh, at the policy level.
2: Got it. I see, uh, Ambassador, you're from Saugus, Mass., which is just, that says a lot to our listeners, first of all, in the Boston area. And it gives you enormous credibility in this conversation. Ambassador, what is, you ever think a kid from Dighton would pull something like this?
4: Um, you know, the kids I grew up with were capable of everything from uh, becoming uh, uh, world-class uh, lawyers uh, in Manhattan uh, to uh, becoming criminals. Uh, it's just like <laughs> three other small... Uh, lower middle-class working community. It was a great place to grow up in and a great place yeah. to come from. It was the salt of the earth.
2: How about that? Here's to Saugus Mass. How, when you when you consider what's in these documents, at least to the extent that we know, Ambassador, and we're going to learn a lot more, I suspect, from from reports and, and leaks uh, on the leaks in the next couple of days here, how much damage was potentially done to our agents in the field, to our intelligence sources who might have been compromised?
4: Uh, almost none now you can and the russians are good at this look at the documents and start speculating on how we got certain information but the um, the one thing the u.s the intelligence community i should say is very good at is it's smart enough not to share how it gets the information with the rest of us in the policy community because it knows we can't be trusted uh so therefore uh agent reports Uh, specific intercepts of uh, uh, electronic transmissions and stuff, that is concealed. The information that is collected is then put into reports and uh, distributed. But uh, the intelligence agencies are very good and have really, really been caught out in um, revealing sources. Thank God.
2: Yeah, we spoke uh, yesterday on balance of power here on Bloomberg with Mark Esper, the former Secretary of Defense, who made the point repeatedly that we need to start tightening the circle, that too many people have access to this information. Do you agree?
4: I do. There are also specific things you can do, and I've been in situations where we do do them. For example, you number all documents. You have to have a specific need to know, unless you're somebody like my friend Mark Esper. He has to need to know everything as defense secretary, but 21-year-old enlisted people don't. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then uh, you limit their access to copying machines. You uh, search them going out of buildings. Uh, There are other things you can do. Very, very uh, sensitive, but the CIA does it as you polygraph people.
2: There it is. Ambassador, great to have you with us here. I appreciate it. In regards to Saugus, James Jeffrey, the former ambassador to Iraq and Turkey, special envoy to the Global Coalition to Defeat ISIS. He's a man of experience, now chair of the Middle East program at the Wilson Center. And we assemble our panel here on Friday. Rick Davis and Jeannie Shanzano with us, our signature panel on this day of the court date. What do you make of the ambassador's take on this, Rick? We've got a 21-year-old in a lot of trouble. Are the charges appropriate for the crime
5: uh sure i i think that the charge has been weighed by doj coordinated with the department of uh, defense and and certainly punitive enough to send a message to anybody else who is thinking of you know being sloppy with with classified documents Um, uh, We certainly have a lot of press around them these days, uh, whether you're a president or a 21 year old. God knows. And uh, and so I think part of it is just managing some of the the, the public reaction to this so that uh, it becomes more and more difficult for people who want to who want to, you know, be sloppy with these documents. And in this case, it sounds like sloppiness was at the heart of the of the equation here. Jeannie, is this the beginning of the embarrassment here for the Biden
2: administration or is the worst out there?
6: You know, let's hope it is the beginning and the end of the embarrassment for the United States, quite frankly. And I think the ambassador just laid out beautifully, um, you know, what a a black mark this can be. Um, You know, amongst the questions you were talking about, another series of questions I think that has got to be addressed, and we hope it will be, is how were these documents not found for so long? And what sort of responsibility do these social media outlets like Discord, what do they have to be responsible for? You can't post pornography Supposedly, on these things. How could you post national security documents? So, I think we have a long way to go in terms of answering a lot of these big questions.
2: We're just getting started with Rick and Jeannie as we see the story on the terminal U.S. humiliated over the 21 year old's alleged tie to secrets leak. The Biden administration's got some explaining to do, and we'll talk more about it with our panel next. The Friday edition of Sound On is off and running. Glad you joined us. This is Bloomberg.
1: You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch the program live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say,
2: Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. So the cleanup begins. The question is, why it took so long for the Biden administration to find these documents, to be aware of them as... Jeannie Shanzano was just asking. We reassemble our panel with Jeannie and Rick Davis, Bloomberg Politics contributors on the Friday edition of Sound On. The Biden administration, as I read on our piece, is going to have a hard time explaining how the biggest U.S. intelligence leak in a decade may have been committed by a 21-year-old airman. And Jeannie, to your point, it took a long time for anyone to know that it was out there. And it's, it's begging the question, I guess, number one, what else is out there? We had the former ambassador to Morocco this week suggesting that sites like Discord are supermarkets for classified U.S. information. But also, what's going to change here, Uh, Jeannie? We need new protocol to have feelers out, apparently on, on even gaming chat sites, to see what the heck has been exposed already
6: that's right and this opens a whole can of worms we're already hearing people in and out of the government saying maybe we need to step up surveillance of social media gaming sites everything else for libertarians that you know you know makes them quake in their boots they don't want more government surveillance of these things but of course from the government's perspective we need to be secure but i would you know re-emphasize what you just said about why this took so long for them to uncover this And to your previous interview, Mm -hmm. if this is a supermarket for classified documents, do these social media sites bear any responsibility to monitor what is being put up there? Which gets us back to something we've all talked about for a long time. Mm -hmm. Do we need regulation or better regulation or some regulation of these social media sites? So, you know, it's absolutely true. We have to figure out how he got these out of there. And the government needs to take responsibility for the one million people, apparently, who have access to these documents. Yeah. but also the sites on where they are being disseminated those organizations may need to be held responsible as well or at least we need to think about regulation on the back end of this so there's an awful lot attached to this story crazy story i think of a 21 year old kid yeah. who in described looking like a little boy who was able <laughs> to do all of this and we still don't know the extent of the damage
2: uh, the ambassador rick even brought up section 230 is, is that something that should be looked at as part of this conversation? Should, should sites, sites like Discord be dissuaded uh, by by allowing this to happen for fear of punishment?
5: Well, it's, it's very hard to uh, imagine that uh, the pile of arguments against 230 that that, that publishing uh, illegal information uh, would not already be covered. <laughs> you would uh, think. But uh, but yeah, look, I mean, it, it's just all part of a, a, a massive debate that's going on in Washington and every capital around the world as to how you regulate, you know, these kinds of publications, uh, if you want to call them that uh, mm-hmm. sites uh, where people create their own content. And in this case. Uh, you know, you find it hard to believe that anybody could actually know what was or what wasn't, uh, you know, classified information, especially because early on he was retyping all this stuff. It was like, it right. looked like his original content. Yep. And uh, which you wonder you know, why he would do that other than trying to avoid being caught. Um, but like the bottom line is, I think that the, the bigger question is, why does it take so long to find this stuff? And mm-hmm. and I think we're at the very beginning stages of a, a another debate around. How you manage open source intelligence? I mean, we've seen in full display uh, during the Ukraine invasion of uh, uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, the use of open source intelligence that tells us troop movements and amassing equipment in certain locations, and it's actually you know been very beneficial to the Ukrainian defense. Um, uh, the same technology that is used to collect pictures and information and 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 that kind of thing in the open source, you know, things that are already in the public domain could have picked these documents up uh, in in the course. So very powerful uh, algorithms that will search out information that might be linked to classified information, you know, will have to come out of the intelligence community at some point.
2: There's an interesting, maybe scary, uh, you guys can weigh in on that part of it, uh, domestic political wrinkle to all of this. As Marjorie Taylor Greene tweets, Jake DeShera is white, male, Christian, and anti-war. That makes him an enemy to the Biden regime. And he told the truth, she writes, about troops being on the ground in Ukraine and a lot more. Ask yourself, who is the real enemy? Tucker Carlson last evening. What's happening to this leaker now is what happens to anyone who contradicts the national security state and their obedient servants in the media. You go to prison. Is this how this is gonna fall down here? Jeannie, there will be some on the right who try to make a hero whistleblower out of this young man?
6: Yes, and, and, and it, this sort of bizarre defense of Jack Tagira, um, because he is Christian white male. He also has videos out there. He is anti-Semitic, he is racist, and a lot more will probably come out in that regard. So you hear Marjorie Taylor Greene, Tucker Carlson, and you know, I, and I've also heard my friends on the right say there was a liberal defense of somebody like Edward Snowden at the in the day. So I think the ambassador was right when he talked about the distinction between whistleblowing and leaking. Regardless of his motives, this was a leak. So these two charges, by my estimation do stand. Um, But, you know, there was other things about Marjorie Taylor Greene's uh, ridiculous uh, tweets yesterday because she talked about the fact that, you know, he's a whistleblower because he revealed the presence of troops in Ukraine. Mm -hmm. Of course, there are American troops in Ukraine. We have an embassy in Ukraine. We are giving (laughs) millions of dollars, billions of dollars. And the Republicans are asking us to track that. How would we track that without troops? I mean, the whole thing is just bizarre. But I think we are in for this division. And I don't think it's going to serve people on the right uh, to make this defense of of this uh, this leaker, Um, whether you call him a whistleblower, a leaker or anything else. He leaked this information. and He's going to have to pay the price if he's found guilty of doing so.
2: Rick, is this going to be the refrain then among uh, lawmakers and others in the, the political sphere who oppose funding the war in Ukraine?
5: Well, just when you thought Marjorie Taylor Greene was starting to become mainstream, she reminds you just (laughs) how crazy she truly is. Um, Look, I mean, we we can't lose sight of the fact that uh, you swear an oath of office when you become a, a part of the military to uphold the laws and the Constitution. This is a direct violation of the law. He's a criminal. He is not a patriot. He is someone who, just like anybody else who would violate the law, Is going to be prosecuted, and the idea that she wants to make him a poster child for the deep state is, you know, her fight against the deep state is ridiculous. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, The security of our country, as the ambassador said earlier, and the security of most Western nations, because our country is so uh, dominant in in the security space, uh, is, is 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 governed by people like this who take their oath and, 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 and live by that oath. And so nothing Marjorie Taylor Greene says uh, that diminishes that is at is, is all going to change the fact that he's a criminal now, and if he's mm-hmm. convicted, and he'll serve time in prison for violating his oath of office.
2: He's got an echo chamber, or she's got an echo chamber on Fox already, though, in this case. Uh, Jeannie, this, this argument is going to take a, on a life of its own at, at some point here.
6: Yeah, it will, and it probably will because, of course, he is out there saying things um, that are racist and anti-Semitic and sexist, and that seems to play right into that playbook. And, you know, it is ridiculous. Everybody should go or save themselves and not go and read what she had to say. Um, Rick is absolutely right. It is insanity. And I don't know if you feel this way as well, but, you know, you have to be 25 in this country to rent a car. Maybe the national intelligence agencies could decide that twenty year old who have access to this information should be limited or we should agree to let them rent cars at the very least mm. i mean this idea from so many perspectives seems so wrong and i have a 20 year old so i i, I feel confident speaking about this yeah sort I'm, of. Not,
2: I'm not sure we want younger <laughs> people to be renting cars a, after all here but rick that it does bring us back to, to mark esper's comment last night is it time to start closing the circle here fewer eyes on these documents
5: Absolutely, um, I, I know that the Defense Department, uh, through the Deputy Secretary Kath Hicks, is looking at a review of how they classify documents and who they go to. Uh, but it's it's absolutely outrageous that the two biggest leaks we've had in intelligence out of the Defense Department, you know, came from uh, Edward Snowden when he was 29 years That's old, right. and this kid when he was 21. Uh, uh, are we not watching the kids in the house? You know, I mean, it's yeah. just absolutely amazing to me that there aren't enough. Uh, constraints uh, given to people who would have access to this and and monitoring when these documents are printed out or downloaded uh, in any server nevertheless one uh, you know operated by uh, someone who uh, has just turned 21 yeah i'll tell you
2: takeaway here to me sounds like you better watch out for the it guy you're listening
1: to the bloomberg sound on podcast Catch us live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app.
2: Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Joe Matthew in Washington, and Kaylee Lines has joined us, as always, for Hour 2 of Bloomberg Sound On. Happy Friday. I don't know how we made Indeed. it. But, of course, this Friday uh, we knew was, was Bank Day, right? This is, of course, mm-hmm. uh, the beginning of earnings season, and after everything that we have gone through <laughs> over the last month, it seems to mean more than ever jp city wells fargo it's good to be the big guys i guess is the moral of the story here huh
7: it, yeah evidently even in the aftermath of a bank crisis or perhaps because of a bank crisis they saw a little bit uh, of a benefit here pretty good earnings for all three of these what's interesting is it's not necessarily translating into some good friday feelings yeah what's up with that for the broader market i don't know we should ask someone joe
2: we should indeed uh, as we uh, as we bring in creedy and Chanali. Uh this is a roundtable I've been looking forward to because everybody has a certain area of expertise, so I should just be quiet for the next 10 minutes. Pretty <laughs> Gupta, Bloomberg Markets correspondent, Shinali Bosick, Bloomberg Wall Street reporter, and of course, Kaylee Lyons here. Man, we have the best of the best, and we're going to get to the bottom of what's going on here. Did you suggest, by the way, that Jamie Dimon maybe got up on the wrong side of the bed?
7: Possibly. The I mean, conference the, call was- the conference call was interesting, basically telling people that they need to Look back at the statement, the letter he had already put out. They could find the answers there. They were answering their own questions. Didn't seem like he was in too jolly a mood I'm with I'm going to start using analysts. that
2: line, Creedy, when people just did – Go back and read my letter. <laughs> um, what did we learn in the conference call uh, today, Creedy, beyond the numbers?
8: Yeah, well, we learned a lot, right? I mean, Jamie Dimon, I think for me, the big takeaway here, and I'm going to let Shanali kind of do the brunt of this, but I think from a macro perspective, from a benchmark perspective, I think the big takeaway was his view on rates. That was my biggest um, move because I've come on the show over and over again all week long and said, hey, take a look at the two-year that has not crossed 4%. And then, hey, today the retail sales came in and mm-hmm. it Crossed four, oh, we're now at 409s, and we're high, much higher earlier. A 17 basis point move intraday, just on the front end of the curve. That is bond volatility we have not seen for a couple of weeks. And then you have Jamie Dimon talking about potentially the front end of the curve at 6%, or even a 10-year at 5%. We are very far away from that. And for me, the concern there is if you're talking about higher rates for longer, and not terminal rates. I'm talking about interest rates that you are. Uh, pricing your mortgages off of, pricing your car loans off of, um, and that our equities are actively being priced off of. Is the market really ready for 150 basis points of change in the 10-year? And that, to me, was the highlight. Got it. Well,
7: Kriti, you just mentioned their car loans, and really just loans of any kind is something we have been talking about extensively over the last several weeks because of concern around whether or not there was going to be a major pullback in lending on the part of banks. And Jamie Dimon, on that call earlier today, actually did get a question around a possible credit crunch. Didn't seem like he really liked that question. Take a listen to what he said. I wouldn't
4: use the word credit crunch if I were you. <laughs> I, I obviously there's gonna be a little bit of tightening. And most of that will be around certain real estate things. You've heard it from, you know, real estate investors already. So, you know, I just look at that as a, a kind of a thumb on the scale. It just makes the finance conditions be a little bit tighter, you know, it increases the odds of a recession.
7: He wouldn't do it if he was you, Joe. That's right. Or Shinaldi. I mean, Shinaldi, Jamie Dimon says it's not happening. Are the other banks singing that tune as well? There's not a material tightening of standards, at least at this point.
9: We have to remember that for JP Morgan in particular, you're looking at a firm with a huge credit card book, similar to Citigroup. And when you're looking at what loans are really rising, what's contributing to net interest income, it's credit cards. It's not really mortgages anymore. You, like There are a lot of concerns about the mortgage market. We saw firms like Wells Fargo having to cut back and JP Morgan having Having to cut back on headcount in those areas because of the pressure on that market tied to the rise in interest rates and so you know you, you were talking a little earlier about retail sales listen if you look at what's happening it's not only that people are still borrowing they're also spending money on their cards so uh, it's not kind of clear across the table that this kind of rise in interest rates and um, this potential uh, let's say not tightening of lending standards would apply to the larger broader regional banking system that we're more worried about that we'll hear from from the next two weeks. Mm. JP Morgan is a very special uh, profile here when we look at their exposure to what kinds of loans they have out. And typically the borrower is much safer.
2: So when we back off this whole thing, Shanali, is the narrative that, that's out there today correct, that the bigger banks actually benefited at the expense of the smaller ones through higher interest rates and, and through the banking crisis.
9: Yeah, well, you know, JP Morgan one thing you could say was a direct beneficiary of what had happened the last couple of months. Their deposit base, right. they drew in more deposits. I mean, they drew they had a jump after a few quarters there of a decline. But they're telling you that that deposit base that came in is not necessarily sticky Citigroup says they had a lot of institutions that came in with them and that is more sticky than you know the retail investor the founder that might have moved their money to JP Morgan in the interim you know people want multiple banking counterparties and frankly I think kind of my favorite quote that I saw today was not in the banking system at all it was from BlackRock it was from Larry Fink saying that money is moving to ETFs and money markets Mm. because you're not getting significant yield at a bank
2: BlackRock's assets, as I read on the terminal, swelled to over $9 trillion as depositors sought cover following the collapse of several U.S. banks pouring money into their cash management funds. That's exactly mm-hmm. what Shanali's talking about uh, here, Kaylee. And and it's a name that is frequently left off the, the JP, City, Wells Fargo list.
7: Yeah, I mean, it may be in somewhat of a league of its own, but we have to consider just Fair the enough. sheer number of uh, assets through which Are managed uh, by BlackRock. As we're talking about assets, different asset pricing, where uh, people are putting their money into Creedy, bank
8: stocks, big bank stocks? Maybe? Maybe not the regionals? I mean, is the worst the pain over for these guys? Um, yes and no. But before I get to that, I want to quickly make a comment on the money markets there, because if mm. th- let's take that a step further, even if you're seeing money go into these money market funds, which makes sense, of course, and is a very natural reaction, by the way, when you're combining banking turmoil with recessionary calls, which have really kind of gotten pulled up timeline wise. Also keep in mind, those money market funds have exposure and are being used in the repo facilities for the Federal Reserve as well. Oh. So it kind of, full, there's a full circle here of how the Federal Reserve is a- suddenly exposed to a massive amount of money that, uh, excuse me, money. Funny money. money. Funny, money, money funny. funny money. funny. Yeah, money at the end of the day. It's been a long day, man. The truth comes out. But point is, there's so much. And I think one of the kind of warnings that, um, again, Jamie Dimon and uh, his – Kind of counterparts on the jp morgan conference call had talked about was that this might not be the end of the moves in deposits just because you're seeing all the deposits come um, in right now does not mean we're going to end the year the same way now to kaylee to ask to answer your question on the stock market of course today you are going to see the larger banks trade off of these massive deposit flows the way we've seen regional banks trade off the updates on their deposit flows that's the no-brainer It might not stay, though, because at the end of the day, again, if you are worried about some sort of recession, financials isn't where you put your money. And if you're trading positively on the larger banks because of deposit flows and the Mm -hmm. bigger banks are telling you that, they're not going to stay there, then why would you keep your money and, there?
9: And on top of that, guys, you know you have this kind of uh, you, you know months-long trend where you see the investment banks doing a lot better than the consumer banks when you look at how they're trading in the stock market. And then the regional banks doing even worse. And if you look at the numbers, yes, the classic investment banking numbers are lower. There are less deals, there are less IPOs, all of the above. But traders are... Making out like bandits. Yeah, totally. <laughs> and so, you know, you have JP Morgan and Citigroup in particular that said fixed income trading was well above estimates. It's b- below where it was last year, but they're still making real money. And that mm-hmm. number helped Citigroup turn a surprise profit, actually. Yeah, so it was. So trend was lies, it sticks.
7: One of the best fixed income trading halls they've seen in a decade. Wow. I guess that's just a question of whether or not Citi or any of these banks can keep keep that up.
9: You know, it's it's interesting because the markets are still volatile. And what they've shown you is these trading businesses are so big and broad that they're able to make money in one place, for example, when they make less money in another. And by the way, JP Morgan gave you that, you know, that beat in their fixed income trading while also broadly taking on more risk at their trading desk. Their value at mm-hmm. risk had gone down. Now, you know, Jamie Dimon, speaking of his annual letter, he warned about this idea that banks in America are going to look different than they used to look. You think about what had happened over the last 10 years in the mortgage market, banks really stepping back in a big way, but you know, when you think about it, there's a very weak securitization market in some ways when you think about a lot of these lending asset classes, and can you expect these assets to start um, being securitized at a greater rate, to trade those securities at a greater rate? Yeah. So th- there, there are a lot of kind of secular changes in banking that support the idea that trading can still make more money particularly when, let's remember that globally we have one less bank.
8: Yeah, and Varus, by the way, if I can just hop in, oh, that uh, Shanali just mentioned, is one of the kind of reasons or a bear case for the equity market here, because if you were still trading that bond volatility, which we have been for about two months now, um, yes, the traders make out like bandits, like Shanali said, but uh, take a look at what happens on the loan front, um, because then all of a sudden, the margin that a lot of these banks are going to be making, that gets way more expensive, and they have to a, kind of walk a really fine line between charging higher rates to make up for the higher rates but then they also have to make sure they're making it up in volume as well yeah. joe
7: i think you and i should uh, just take yeah, an early summer friday and, right <laughs> <laughs> let these
8: two go yeah,
2: don't, shh, don't tell him uh, i love it when these conversations take on a life of their own Creedy, what does this tell us uh, about what the what the smaller and regional banks are going to say this season
8: well, I think one of the things you kind of have to watch for, I mean, the no-brainers here are deposit flows, right, and bankruptcy and kind of uh, how much uh, dependence they have on the FDIC's kind of back lending program. Those are the obvious ones. But for me, what I really want to know is how much of the buybacks are they going to start talking about? We talked to Herman Chan about this over on Bloomberg Intelligence, because if you start to look at uh, the price-to-book ratios here for a lot of these regional banks, they are far below one. They are very, very cheap. And the reason nobody wants to touch them is because they're just seen as too risky to touch but if you are a regional bank that is doing fairly well or even a mid-sized bank charles schwab pnc etc and your stock is tanking why not buy back the stock and that's what i wonder if there's going to be an incentive there that we hear in the next few weeks to say hey look we're okay and we're going to show you we're okay by buying our stock back
9: it's funny. They tried to tell you they're OK by not buying back stock because they're trying to preserve capital. But then mm. you don't really give the investor something to chew on if if you're saying that we cannot give you greater capital return.
7: Yeah, well, just on the subject of capital and capital requirements, specifically liquidity requirements as well. It also kind of brings up the point, Shanali, of how the regulatory overhang is still very much I'm there. so glad
9: you asked. Yeah.
7: <laughs> well, uh, what what are we hearing about that? Because it feels like that was the conversation and then it just kind of faded sure into My the background. My favorite
9: commentary that I haven't gotten to talk about all day yet because nobody's asked. Well, is, please do then. But it is important and it is part of the national conversation here is the idea of the assessment fees for the big banks as they pay mm-hmm. them to the FDIC going up. And it's unclear how much they'll really go up, but it's very much baked into JP Morgan's kind of expense base here, um, the idea that that expenses are going up. Now, remember, J.P. Morgan was more profitable this quarter than anyone would have expected, so they could foot the cost, right? But um, that is one thing that we can expect that will have a direct financial result to the big banks as we think about this question of deposit insurance and uh, boosting the uh, availability of deposit insurance across the banks, and maybe one day even raising that $250,000 limit. Lastly, I would also say it's not just capital requirements and rules. There's a lot of questions, and I think we have to wait for this to shake out, that this is going to be a push-pull against the knee-jerk reaction to create more rules and stricter capital requirements. Mm -hmm. And the bigger issue that I know that you look at a lot, too, which is supervision. Because in early May, we'll kind of see how the Fed has kind of assessed itself here and investigated itself on how it dealt with some of these issues here in the banking system. And you know there's going to be an eye on why the existing rules did not play out Mm -hmm. as they should have in all cases.
7: Yeah, I mean, it strikes me that Jamie Dimon on the conference call today, Joe, was basically Mm -hmm. saying he wants everyone to take a deep breath. Look at what happened (laughs) and the breadth and depth of the regulations that are already in place, that it doesn't have to be a revamp of the whole system, just a recalibration. Going back to
2: my prediction a couple of weeks ago that nothing Mm -hmm. will change from here. They finish each other's sentence. They're so good. Kriti Gupta (laughs) and Shanali Basik, thank you both so much. True experts in their field. And what a treat to have uh, Kriti and Shanali with us here on Bloomberg Sound On.
0: From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie?
1: Catch the program live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa,
2: play Bloomberg 1130. And the headline says it all, Uh, Kaylee. DeSantis signs six-week abortion ban in Florida. This is really remarkable because Florida already had a 15-week ban that's actually tied up in court right now. But as... Ron DeSantis prepares what appears to be a national campaign mm-hmm. for president. Uh, this is not obviously in line with the sort of popular consensus nationally. And after what we saw in Wisconsin, what we saw in the midterms, there are a lot of questions about the strategy here. I'll mention yeah. alongside the DOJ is getting involved in the uh, the abortion pill debate, asking the Supreme Court now uh, to make Mifepristone fully available. So we will likely... Uh, be on our way to a major Supreme Court ruling at some point on this. It's just hard to see how all of these headlines come together.
7: Yeah, well, I mean, what they do display is the very incredible amount of friction and tension around the abortion issue in America. And as you Mm -hmm. rightly allude to, Joe, clearly one that is of high priority to voters. We have seen that on display in elections of all sorts uh, over the course of the last several months. And for Ron DeSantis in particular, it raises the question of maybe this helps him when he is seeking the Republican nomination in the primaries as he tries to differentiate himself uh, between conservative candidates. Yeah. But then you get to the general yeah. election. it's Kind of
2: hard to pivot off of that, right? And
7: that gets a little more complicated I mean, for him, I would think.
2: You're planting your flag here. Right. As we know that this is polling data from the Public Religion Research Institute. 72% The percentage of those who oppose laws that make it illegal to use or receive through the mail FDA approved drugs for a medical abortion. Mm -hmm. 72%. They're ah, good luck finding an issue that brings a number that high in this country at this point, huh?
7: Yeah, absolutely. And uh, it's one conversation, Joe, that I think we are going to have continually, certainly in the run up to 2024, but also as we wait for all of these legal battles Mm -hmm. to play out in full.
2: That's why we wanted to talk to Carol Sanger. Uh, Professor of Law at Columbia with us here on The Latest. Carol, it's great to have you back on Bloomberg Radio. Thanks for the time here. Uh, I, I guess we can pick through these one at a time, but the DOJ move is compelling to me. Do you see this as something that the DOJ acts on imminently?
10: You mean that they will um, challenge it in court and try to get this yeah. to the Supreme Court? Yeah, yeah for exactly. a ruling
2: on Mifepristone specifically.
10: Yes, um, they have to because, because what uh, the Texas... A district court judge and then the fifth circuit court is sort of approved it is too um too vital to the whole case of whether abortion is going to be uh, about whether or not we're going to follow the supreme court's decision in dobbs which was the case that was decided last uh, early last summer yeah. that overturned roe v wade and the interesting thing is one of the things that justice alito said right in the beginning of the decision is what we're doing here is we're supporting democracy. We're saying that the 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 Supreme Court shouldn't decide what whether abortion is going to be illegal or not, but it should go back to every state. And so, what the what the what the uh, banning of uh, or the attempt to ban Mifepristone does is take it away from the state mm-hmm. because um, we have 17 uh, states that say we're keeping for now we're keeping abortion legal. And so it's like out of left field that that's the, the basic ruling, and then some Texas judge or you know a Texas judge comes in and says, "No, I don't think they did such a good job deciding yeah. that
7: um, ifris was dangerous well, and it strikes me as well, Carol, that when we're thinking about this, we have to consider that yes, this is about abortion and access to the abortion pill, but it also is about the jurisdiction of the FDA, essentially. And Absolutely. so I do wonder if this ultimately comes down to the Supreme Court, which, as we know, had has already ruled uh, in favor of rolling back abortion rights, if because of the FDA component and the kind of precedent this would set, they may be compelled to rule in a different way than you might think for a conservative majority.
10: Well, I think that's right. And it's not just that they'll rule it, but they really have to take the case because there's way more at stake with um, saying the FDA doesn't have the traditional authority that it has. And, and uh, uh, it, you, can, you can test it out and say, well, fine, we don't like abortion, so let them, let them let's take that down. But there are so, <laughs> all of us rely on the FDA to approve our drugs, our food, uh, and, and so we, we have, as a country, we have great faith in this administrative agency and you can't really pick and choose um we, we say well they act with integrity they do scientific experiments they require high standards before they'll pass a uh, you know pr- prove a drug so that's you you're, you're quite right it's not just in, in a way this is very good for pro choice people because they have the larger issue they can present that as well it's not just us guys it's whatever drug you happen to like hmm. you know that could now be at risk
2: The Florida uh, ban that Ron DeSantis signed is making big headlines here, a six-week ban for its own reasons, of course. But the the existing 15-week ban, which he signed uh, in a ceremony as opposed to uh, 11 o'clock last night the way this was done, that's actually being contested as well. How how does that come to fruition?
10: Well— The So before we had Dobbs, which said we're getting rid of abortion, the right to abortion altogether, Mm -hmm. everyone thought that the issue was going to be how much time do you get to decide to have an abortion uh, other than viability? Because there was a big argument that viability was too long a period. And so – but what the court did in Dobbs was say don't worry about the length of time Um, as as the key way to get rid of abortion. We're going to – we're going we but 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 states may say yeah we'll have we we'll, we will have legal abortion but we'll only have it for 6 weeks or 15 weeks and 15 weeks is um most women have abortion women and girls have abortion at at 8 weeks or before mm-hmm. so we see that setting it at 15 weeks is sort of like a scare tactic and setting it at 6 weeks is really um so hostile and aggressive because it's it's still the case we've got a lot of over-the-counter pregnancy testing but a lot of women especially younger women don't know that they're pregnant by six weeks but there is
7: there mm -hmm. there is still a question carol of ultimately if this will stand or even if the 15-week ban will stand the state supreme court still has to issue a decision on constitutionality do you think there is a way that will go
10: you mean in light of they've just the the, the legislature just passed a six-week ban, so right? But that can't actually take effect. 15, that's right. They have to decide this other one first, which is, is you know it's it's teed up to be decided, and it looks like DeSantis is just um, saying to his hardcore base, um, I'm I'm protecting you. I've got mm-hmm. I've got your back, and if we lose on the fifteen. You know, it doesn't matter. I'm going in with the, We've I've already secured for you the six-week ban. And so it's, um, it's, it's sort of like um, showing, showing off or grandstanding hmm. and saying, I, I look, look, at, look at these numbers and you'll see that I'm on your side. But actually, most people don't favor the six-week ban, as we saw in some of the referendum.
2: That's um, for sure. It's
10: just not, it's just not enough time.
2: That's borne out in the polling data uh, across the board. Carol, thank you for joining us. Carol Sanger, professor of law at Columbia University, author of About Abortion, Terminating Pregnancy in the 21st Century. My goodness, this is a story that's not going away to your point earlier, Kaylee, as we get into a campaign season. You've got the likes of Ron DeSantis weighing in now. But one thing that we talked a lot about and probably not enough uh, since around the Dobbs decision was the economic impact that this has on women. And you've actually put some data on this now.
7: Yeah, I mean, and for Florida, for specifically, since we were just talking about uh, Ron DeSantis, the Institute for Women's Policy Research in 2020, so before things had got even yeah. more restrictive, estimated that the total economic loss for women of reproductive age, so 15 to 44 because of state-level abortion restrictions in Florida, was $6.5 billion. And that if you eliminated those restrictive policies, you would have a six-tenths of a percent increase in state GDP and a a one-and-a-quarter percent increase in the state's labor force for women of that age. When you take that nationally, the same institute says that restrictive abortion laws cost state and local economies $105 billion annually by reducing labor force participation and earnings levels for these women affected.
2: That is really uh, remarkable. But, you know, we're Bloomberg. We, we of course, follow the data. Mm -hmm. And what was uh, a compelling anecdotal argument means a lot more when you put numbers on it, doesn't it?
7: Yeah, absolutely.
2: Thanks for listening to the Sound On podcast. Make sure to subscribe if you haven't already at Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. And you can find us live every weekday from Washington, D.C. at 1 p.m. Eastern Time at Bloomberg.com.
0: From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang.